0: We apologise for the poor quality during this sermon taken from Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 1. This is due to a deterioration in the original master tape. Although we have processed it digitally, to improve the sound quality, some defects do remain. And we trust that this will not spoil your enjoyment too much of this, the final sermon in the series preached in 1959 to commemorate the great revival of 1859. Here's Dr Lloyd-Jones. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heaven, and that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Now, here we come to what I described last Sunday morning as the second petition, the second great petition in this prayer that was offered by the prophet Isaiah at this particular juncture in the life and history of his people, when they were in a condition which can be described as forsaken and desolate. The prophet, you remember, having seen the position, has come to certain decisions, and the particular decision with which we are concerned is this decision about praying to God, giving him no rest nor peace giving ourselves no rest, until Jerusalem shall again be made a praise in the earth. And then we've been following his exact prayer. And I do repeat this because it's so important. This man knew how to pray. And we all need instruction about prayer. Prayer is not easy. Prayer because we are what we are is difficult. And we need instruction. If we have never felt what our Lord's disciples felt when they turned to him one afternoon and said, Lord, teach us how to pray, it is probably because we've never really prayed at all. So God in his kindness has provided with us the, for us these great patterns and examples and illustrations. And we have seen that the prophet looks back He, as it were, says to himself, how have our people faced similar conditions in the past? And he looked back and he saw clearly that what happened always was that they repented. They came to a realization that they were in trouble because of their own folly and their own sin. And having realized it, they confessed it. And then they went to God and prayed him to have pity upon them, offering no plea, except that they were his people. There was no other plea to offer. And then we saw that having done that, he particularly put it in this form. He prays for God to look back upon them again. God had turned away his face. And the prophet pleads with him to look back again upon them. That he mustn't continue thus to turn away from them. He he beseeches him. To look down upon them, to behold their condition, to take again in them the interest that he once took. Like a child, I say, pleading with his parent to avert his anger and to smile upon him once more. Well, there was the first great petition, a desire to see the face of God again, to know that he was well disposed toward us. And to feel that he was taking a loving interest in them. But he doesn't stop at that, you see. And true prayer for the church never can stop at that. It's never satisfied with that alone. There is always this further petition, which is contained in this 64th chapter. And here again we find that there is just really one prayer, but it has all the characteristics which true praying always has. You notice the first word, oh. I again would remind you of that, that true praying is always characterized by the use of that word, oh, that thou wouldest win the heavens. There's no word that's more expressive of longing than that word, oh. It expresses a thirst, a deep desire. It's a confession of man at the end of his resources, and waiting and looking for and longing for God. Oh that thou wouldest render him. That is the obvious characteristic, but you also have here, as we saw last Sunday, the other characteristics, the alternation of petition and confession the claims that are made, and almost the arguments and disputations with God. These are ever the characteristics of true praying. In other words, you see, this man is really, as he puts it himself in his own words, he is laying hold upon God. He's stirring himself up to pray, and he is taking hold of God. It's an extraordinary expression. And yet how true it is. That is true prayer. Not a mere casual expression of our desire. Not something perfunctory and half-hearted. Real prayer means taking hold of God and not letting go. You've got it all. In the famous instance of Jacob, you remember? Struggling with that man who appeared to him on that critical night before he had to meet his brother Esau. He struggled with him. He wrestled with him. And when the day broke and the men said that he must go, Jacob said, I will not let thee go. Taking hold of God, laying hold upon him, pleading with him, reasoning, arguing, beseeching. Now I say it is only when the church rarely arrives at that position that she truly begins to pray. And therefore let us follow this man now as we have here his final great petition. There it is. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heaven, that thou wouldst come down. Now, I don't hesitate to assert that that is the ultimate prayer in connection with revival. It is right, of course, always to pray to God to bless us and to look upon us and to be gracious unto us. That is a prayer we should always be offering. But this goes beyond that. This goes further. And it is here, I say, we see the difference between what the church should always be praying for and the special, peculiar, urgent prayer for a visitation of God's Spirit for revival. And there is no term that better expresses this ultimate petition than justness. You noticed it? In Cowper's hymn, Oh, rend the heavens, come quickly down. And make a thousand hearts thine own. We don't often see a thousand hearts turning to God in Christ, do we? But that's what happens in revival, you see. He's got the right petition. Rend the hymns, And when God rends the hymns, Whoa, a thousand, three thousand in the day of Pentecost. Make a thousand hearts thine own. This is a prayer for something unusual, something quite exceptional, and it is at the same time a reminder to us of what revival really is, and there's no better way of putting it than this. It is indeed God coming down. God, as it were, no longer merely granting us the blessings I have to use such terms, and yet in a sense they're very foolish. God merely, I say, everything that God does is marvelous and wonderful and transcends our highest imagination. And yet you have these contrasts in the scripture. It isn't God doing what he normally does, it's God doing the unusual. God coming down. I've often quoted in this pulpit, I must quote it again. A statement found in the journals of George Whitfield of how on one occasion he was preaching at Cheltenham. And he says that suddenly during his sermon, God, he says, the Lord came down amongst us. Now that's the thing I'm talking about. George Whitfield was a man who rarely preached without being aware of the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit. But there were variations even in his ministry. And there something quite exceptional happened. So exceptional that he makes a note of it. God came down. Oh yes, they'd been enjoying the presence and the blessing of God before, but not like this. Something strange had happened. God was in the very midst. God came down. That is exactly What happens during a revival? What's it mean? Well, we can analyze it like this, if you like. It is a consciousness of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, literally in the midst of the people. Probably most of us who are here have never known that. But that is exactly what is meant by a visitation of God's Spirit. It's over and above and beyond the highest experiences in the normal life and working of the church. Suddenly, those present in the meeting become aware that someone has come amongst them. They're aware of a glory, they're aware of a presence. They can't define it, they can't describe it, they can't put it into words. They just know that they've never known anything like this before. Sometimes they've put it like this. They say, days of heaven on earth. They rarely feel that they're in heaven. They've forgotten time. They're beyond time. Time has no longer any meaning to them, nor any real existence. They're in a spiritual realm. God has come down amongst them and has filled the place and the people with a sense of his glorious presence. And, of course, accompanying this always is the thing which the prophet emphasizes here in particular, that is, it is a manifestation of the power of God. Not only the glory and the radiance of God's presence, but especially his power. Notice the terms which he uses. Oh, he says that thou wouldst redden the heavens. There's a tearing process. God erupts into the midst. Rend the heavens. That thou wouldest come down. Then listen. That the mountains might flow down at thy presence. These great mountains that seem everlasting and eternal that are always there, whether the wind blows or doesn't, whether the rain comes or goes, whether the sun shines or is clouded, these everlasting lasting hills and mountains, when God comes down, even the mountains begin to flow. Or, as he takes up another comparison, when the melting fire burneth. Fire with its tremendous power. Look at that lump of metal, of ore. How solid it seems, but throw it into the furnace and it begins to melt and to flow. The fire, the power. Or, as he says in another comparison, the fire causeth the waters to boil. Haven't you seen the movement and the motion in the water? What is it? Well, it's the fire, it's the heat, it's the power in the flame, boiling, churning the water. Now, these are very graphic. And very dramatic images. And of course he uses them to convey some impression of the power of God. Now there is very little doubt. But that in particular the prophet here was thinking as these children of Israel generally did think when they were praying along this line. Of what God had done at Mount Sinai. In the giving of the law. Let me read to you from Exodus 19. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the never part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Now that was something, you see, at the beginning, as it were, of the story of the children of Israel that they'd never forgotten. God gave them that manifestation of himself and his glory and his power, in order that as they went in their journeys, they should never be afraid. They would have hostile nations to meet. Enemies would gather against them. But what's it matter? Here is a God who can shake mountains. A mountain began to quake and the fire and the burning and the glory of God and God came down. That's what he's praying for. He realizes that he's praying to a God who is still like that and who could still do what he had done in ancient times. Now, this is the power, I say, that we likewise should realize and should pray for. And half far troubles in our praying is due to the fact that we fail to realize the greatness and the power of God. We are troubled about the enemies of the church. We see the arrogance and the power of the world. But you know, my friends, a day is coming when this will be true. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. That day is coming. Let there be no mistake about this. That is the power of God. God. This solid universe, these everlasting hills, the elements, they're all going to melt, be dissolved, disrupted, rent. The heavens themselves shall pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Now I say that we must remind ourselves that the God to whom we pray is a God of great power. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow at thy presence. That is the power of God, I say, which we must never lose sight of. You remember how the Apostle Paul puts it in his way? There were troubles in the church at Corinth, and the Apostle writes like this. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Are we clear about this power of God? Are we clear about its illimitable character? Do we realize, modern Christians, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds? Are you troubled still about all these philosophies and ideologies and all the politics and everything that is opposed to God, anti-God movements, Why all this talk about the enemy? Have we forgotten the power of God? Our God, I say, is a God who can rend the very heavens and cause the mountains to flow and boil the sea as if it were but water in a kettle. The everlasting God, the power of God. That is what he prays for. He prays that the glory and the power of God may be made manifest. Oh, he says that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. Are we praying that prayer? Is that our innermost desire? Are we at all concerned about the present situation? Why should Isaiah pray like this, and why shouldn't we? Why should praying like this be confined to certain people now and again in the long history of the church? Why doesn't every Christian feel this? Now that's the question, so I put it in this form. Why should we pray like this? Let that be our second heading this morning. Well, the prophet answers the question. He always has a reason, and you and I must have the reasons, otherwise we'll never pray. Here's the first thing. A zeal for God's name and for God's glory. Why is he praying that God may come down as when the melting fire burneth and the fire causeth the waters to boil? Well, for this reason, to make thy name known to thine adversaries. That's the reason. That's the first reason. You notice that it is always the first reason in the Bible. These men pray to God as they did because they had a zeal for the name and the glory of God. Come down, says this man. Why? Well, that these adversaries of thine may know thy name. You notice that he says that they are God's adversaries. Why doesn't he say, our adversaries, that would have been true, yes, but he's got a deeper insight than that. And that is where we go wrong so frequently. We will persist in regarding the church as a human institution. We are fighting for our lives, trying to keep the doors open, trying to keep the church going. So we put up our commissions and we multiply our organizations. Our adversaries, this is what we are fighting. No, no, says the prophet. They're God's adversaries. And if you and I don't see behind the visible and the seen, we are the merest tyros in the spiritual realm. We talk about the manifestations of evil. The Bible is concerned about the ultimate cause of evil. You see, the fight is not merely a fight against the wireless and television and the motor car and all these things. No, no, that's not the fight at all. It isn't even against men. The Apostle Paul sees it clearly and he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not the problem. It isn't merely men and what they do. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Against what then? Oh, against principalities and powers. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. These things that we see are the mere pawns, the dupes the mere instruments and channels. It's the devil, it's hell, hating God, thine adversaries. So the first reason for praying that God should come down is that his name may be known and recognized amongst his adversaries. That's the trouble with the world. You know, he doesn't know God. And the world will never be interested in the Christian message until it has some knowledge of God. Oh, the church has been blind to this. She's been trying to attract people to herself for 50 years and more, putting on popular programs, dramas, music, this, that and the other, trying to entice the people, especially the young people, but they don't come. Of course not. They never will until they know the name of the Lord, and then they'll come. The reason why men and women are outside the church is that they don't know God. They don't know his name. That thy name may be known to thine adversaries. And they'll never know it until they see a manifestation of it. So we pray, descend, come down, rend the heavens, that these adversaries may know thy name. Nothing will make them listen but that. We've tried everything else, haven't we? The church has never been so brilliant in her organizations as she is at the present time, and as she has been during the whole of this century. She's using every means that the world can use and give her, she uses them every one, but the statistics go on repeating their miserable tale. Another conference this week has again reported a serious decline in membership in her body. On it goes, one after another. What's the matter? These people don't know the name of the Lord. And there's only one thing to do, to pray to him, to rend the heavens and to make it known. Yes, and not merely that they may know it, but further, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. That knowing the name of the Lord, they may begin to fear him and to desist. From sin. This is a great theme in the Old Testament and in the New. Listen to the psalmist putting it in Psalm 99. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. The Lord reigneth, let the people The living God, the everlasting God, the God in whose hand all things are. Oh, the tragedy of a world that doesn't know him. The arrogance and the pride of these nations and people and rulers who defy him. If they but have a glimpse of his glory, they tremble in his presence. He's going to shake them. He's going to shake their world. There'll be nothing left, not a rack behind. It's all going to be dissolved. Everything will vanish. You read the sixth chapter of the book of Revelations. And at the manifestation of his glory, you'll find that the kings and the great of the earth will cry out unto the rocks and to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from what? From the wrath of the land. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Well, when you go home, read Psalm 46 and see the psalmist working it out there. And he winds up it in, in these great words, Be still, and know that I am God. You foolish people who are arguing against God. He maketh wars to cease, of God. He can do anything he likes. There's nothing that he cannot do. He created everything out of nothing. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He is the eternal God, the creator, the controller of the ends of the earth. Be still. Give up, even. And admit that I am God. That's what this man is praying for. Oh, God, he says, why don't you come down? That these Adversaries of thine may know thy name and tremble in thy presence. Christian people, I don't understand you if you're not offering this same prayer. As you see the arrogance of so-called learning and the impudence of all that claims to be culture. As you see men and women in their fineries and in their rags, blaspheming the name of this holy God. Don't you feel like asking him just to give a touch of his power to silence them and to cause them to tremble In his holy presence. That's what this man felt. That's what God's people have always felt when they've truly prayed for revival. And then the last reason for it is the one he gives at the very end of the chapter, the state of Israel. But he puts that last, you see. We start with it, of course. We are also subjective and self-centered. We start with ourselves and we end with us. Not this man. Oh, this is the thing that's hurting him. Those adversaries, come down, he says. Let them know thy name. Let them be humbled before thee. And then, finally, oh, be not wroth, very sore, oh Lord. Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee. We are thy people, thy holy cities are of wilderness. Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised thee is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself to these things, O oh Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Have mercy upon us, they say, in the state of thy church. Behold what we are, and remember what we once were. Think of thine own heritage, thine own church, make her again glorious. There, my friends, are the reasons for praying like this. But come, let us come to a third heading, Encouragements to Pray Like This. I'm sorry I'm having to rush such a great matter. I wish I could be here for weeks to go on with this. But let me give you the headings. Work them out for yourselves. Encouragements to such prayer. Here's the first. What God has done in the past. Verse 3. When thou didst terrible things, which we look not for, thou camest down, the mountains flow down at thy presence. As if he were saying, I'm not asking the impossible. I'm simply asking that you do what you've already done. Let me say it again. The greatest tonic to a drooping spirit is to read the history of the church. Read the history of the church, my friends. It didn't start, you know, when Moody first came to this country. It goes back through the running centuries. Go back. Read the story of the church. Consider what God has done in ages past. There's nothing so stimulating to prayer as death. And you notice the interesting way in which he puts it when thou didst terrible things which we looked not for. You know, says this man in his prayer, O God, in the past you surprised your own people. You did things that they'd never imagined. He did it, of course, in Egypt. There they were in an impossible situation. Slaves. In the hands of powerful Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and they hadn't a sword, they'd nothing past masters and their lashes upon the backs of the poor people. There they were. What hope was there for them? But out they came. God led them out. Thou didst strange things, terrible things, which we looked not for. Pharaoh didn't want to let them go, did he? No, but God soon made him do, so he sent plagues upon him. Plagues of lice, plagues of frogs, blood in the river, everything to humble him and he brought him down and the people went out Red Sea here they are Bel Zephon, Hurst the Pharaoh Red Sea impossible not at all he bides the sea this is the God whom we are worshipping and to whom we are praying with things which we look not for and again in the desert there they are it's a howling barren wilderness and there's nothing to eat And suddenly God begins to send them bread from heaven. No water. Dying of starvation first. Moses strikes the rock. Out comes the gushing water. Things that we look not for. That's our God, my friends. Jordan at last. How can they enter into the land of promise? Jordan in flood. What's Jordan to our God? He divides it. The conquest of the land and the many deliverances that he gave them. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for. That's the encouragement to pray. And you and I have even greater encouragements than those which this prophet Isaiah had. Things which we look not for. The greatest thing has happened... When the fullness of the times was come God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law Shall God indeed verily dwell with men? He has God rent the heavens and sent forth his son He didn't do it like that metaphorically but he did it like that in the sense that the son came out of the courts of glory and entered the virgin's womb Things that we thought not of Things that we'd never looked for You've done them God has done that. Oh, yes, but you say Jesus of Nazareth was defeated by his enemies. He was taken and condemned and killed. He died. They buried him in a grave. There's the end. No, no. He burst asunder the same word, the bands of death, and he rose triumphant o'er the grave. The resurrection is behind us. It's the God of the resurrection. Death is conquered. The grave has lost its power. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Ah, but you say, that doesn't help us very much. Because he's gone back to heaven and he's just left these twelve ordinary, ignorant men, these disciples... These apostles, so-called, what's the use of leaving twelve men in a hostile world with Judaism against them and the pagans against them and everybody against them, hell against them. What a mad thing to do, to leave twelve men. But you know what happened, don't you? These twelve men and some companions of theirs were meeting together in an upper room and suddenly there was a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. What's happened? Oh, God has rent the heavens and has come down. It is the descent of the Holy Ghost. The sound of a mighty, rushing wind filling the house. God rending the heavens. That's behind us. Let's remind God of it. He's the same God. He sent the Spirit. He has sent him since. Go back and read the story of the Protestant Reformation. Read of the mighty revival of 200 years ago... ...affecting London and the provinces and other countries. Go back and read the story, I say, again of 1859. What are all these? Rent heavens! God rending the heavens and coming down. Coming amongst his people, displaying his power and his glory. The sound of a rushing mighty wind. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for... Do it again, oh, that thou wouldest rend the heaven. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? The encouragement of history. But listen to another encouragement which the, which the prophet gives here. When he reminds the people of the possibilities when you're praying to God. Have you noticed verse 4? For since the beginning of the world men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither at the eye seen or God beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Oh, what an encouragement this is. What should I pray for, sir, somebody, my dear friend? There's no limit to what you should pray for, no limit at all. Since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither have the eyes seen. O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Let me give you that as the Apostle Paul puts it in his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 2. Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of men, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Have you realized the possibilities? When you pray what you pray for, as is their limit? Are you putting your little pygmy limits for the possibilities there's no end to them? Man has no conception of it, says Paul. The highest imagination can't get there. I yeah, nothing no, no. It's beyond all this. You notice how he put it also in writing there to the Ephesians in that third chapter. His prayer was that they might know with all other saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. That he might be filled with all the fullness of God. My friends, he was praying that for Christian people like you and myself. That's Christianity, you know. It isn't just being saved, knowing your sins are forgiven, and being a good, respectable church member. No, no, that he might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then you remember he goes on, in order that there might be no mistake about all this, he says, Now unto him that is able to do for us what? Exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. That's the measure of it. It's not surprising that John Newton in one of his hymns therefore put it like this. The hymn which begins, Come, my soul, thy suit prepared. Jesus loves to answer prayer. You remember he goes on, he says, You are coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. You can never ask too much. Shame on us for our puny prayers. For putting our little limits to God's illimitable power. Oh, we say, but we are in the 20th century. It's no use talking to us about 1859 and the 18th century and the Protestant Reformation and Pentecost. Look at our problems. Look at the sophisticated world. What are you talking about? I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man, exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. You are coming to a king, large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such, you can never ask too much. The sky is the limit, says the modern man. No, no, we are praying to one who is above it. Oh, run the heavens, come down. There is no limit. We are praying to the eternal and the illimitable God. And then let me encourage you with the promises of God. Did you notice it there in verse 5? What a glorious word this is. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy way. Oh, thank God for this. How do I know that God's going to listen to me and to give me my petition? Here's the answer. He's ready to meet certain people. Thou meetest. He's promised to do this. Who does he meet? He meets with those who work righteousness and who rejoice in doing so. He meets with all as the end of verse 4 has told us. Who wait for him. I Have no doubt about that my dear friend. Listen to James as he says. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you. It's a fact. It's certain. Draw nigh unto God and God will draw nigh unto you. He meeteth these people. If, if with all your heart ye truly seek me, ye shall surely find me. Have you sought him? Have you found him? He's promised it. If with all your heart ye truly seek me, You shall surely find me. Draw near unto God, and he will draw near unto you. Thou meetest. Of course he does. Blessed be his name. And lastly, the gracious character of God. Have you been puzzled by this strange expression in verse 5? Behold thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. What does it mean? It means just this. Oh God, says this man, you've averted your face from us because we have sinned. You're displeased with us. Thine anger and thy wrath are against us because of our sinfulness. I know it, says the man. And then he says this daring thing. He says, but you know, oh God, that isn't really you. You don't always stay like that. In those is continuance. What's that? Oh, it's God's promise to meet with him that rejoiceth and worketh. Righteousness, in those is continuance. God's wrath is as it were temporary. His mercy endureth forever. In those is continuance and we shall be saved. Thank God, says this man, I know that your mercy and your love and your compassion are deeper than your wrath. And therefore I hold on to it. In those is continuance. Listen to the psalmist saying the same thing. His anger endureth but for a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Thank God it isn't perpetual night. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. The God of the morning, the God of love, the God of compassion. He will not always chide, says the psalmist in 103. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. But in these is continuance, mercy, love, compassion, and pity. Hold on to it. In those is continuance. And we shall be saved. But thy compassions, Lord, to endless years endure, and children's children find the promise ever sure. Oh, what blessed encouragements to pray. The character of God. Not only his might and his power and his glory, but his compassion, his loving kindness, his tender mercy. Yes, grace to the vilest of sinners. Grace abounding to the vilest of sinners. While we were yet dead in sins, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, his anger endureth, but for a moment in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. God's displeasure is upon the church because of her sin, because of her apostasy and rebellion. But if she truly repents and rarely seeks him, He will yet meet with her. If with all your heart... you truly seek me... you shall surely find me. Well, seek him. Stir yourself up to call upon his name. Take hold upon him. Plead with him as your father... as your maker, as your potter... as your guide, as your God... Plead his own promises, and cry unto him and say, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. Oh, rend the heavens, come quickly down, and make a thousand hearts thine own. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.